0: Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science, and I'm here. I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Sue Wong. She's a clinical professor at the School of Medicine at Cardiff University in England. She's also a professor of diabetes and metabolism, and we're very excited to talk to her about her uh, work over the years there, uh, and um, also her her very new paper just came out recently. Slow progressors to type 1 diabetes lose all islet autoantibodies over time. They have few islet antigen-specific CD8 plus T cells and exhibit a distinct CD95 high B cell phenotype. That'll be very cool to talk about. So welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Monica. So can you give us a little perspective? You've had some time in the fields. You know, Can you talk to us about sort of how you got interested in type 1 diabetes, and some of the work you've done
1: to date. Yes, I started as a graduate in medicine in looking to think about where I wanted to to go, and I had always been fascinated by type 1 diabetes, This, this concept that balance within the body was really important, and insulin and the work within us that the pancreas does is so central to to good health. And I came, after doing my clinical training, I came to doing my scientific research. Um, In those days, we had to do a research project in order to progress in hospital medicine in the UK. And I actually did my PhD in the immunogenetics of type one diabetes. And so I was introduced not only to concepts about genetic susceptibility, Um, but also to the fascination of the immune system. And that was about 30 years ago. And T-cells were just coming onto the platform. In the past, B-cells had been much more studied. And it was the decade of the 1980s that really put T-cell immunology on the map. And so when I started doing this, we were still really beginning to to get to grips with the various different parts of the immune system that would play into developing diabetes. And after my PhD, I had the very good fortune of being able to go and work with Professor Charlie Janeway at Yale. And it was at that point that I really started to work into the, in the basic sciences. And at the time, people really were focused on the immune system being involved in type one diabetes, and particularly helper CD4 T cells. But Charlie had the view that actually when he looked at all the things that were going on, and particularly when you look at the histology of human pancreas, there had been a collection by Alan Fowlis in in Glasgow, um, and one of the very striking things that came out when he had done his very careful pathological studies, was that MHC class one was lighted up on the pancreases, and well, CD8 T cells, the killer T cells, are actually the ones that recognise MHC class one. And around that time, when I was about to to join him, um, there was also some studies done in the non-obese diabetic mouse model of diabetes that suggested that actually, if the mice didn't express class one, They didn't get diabetes, which also said maybe CD8 T-cells are actually really important. Although the world at that time was after the CD4 T-cells, because the genetic susceptibility factors point to CD4 T-cells because it's MHC class 2, we started to look at MHC class 1 and CD8 T-cells. And what was really exciting about that period of time was that indeed it did seem that CD8 T cells were fairly centrally involved and I was lucky enough to to be able to work on this project. We isolated some CD8 T cells that when they were put into a new mouse, a new NOD mouse if you like, one that wasn't sick before it became diabetic, that actually the cells caused the mouse to become diabetic, indicating that CD8 T-cells could be very powerful in causing diabetes. That was a big surprise.
0: It was a surprise. You know, to the rest of the community, scientific community.
1: It, It was, because they were relatively little investigated at that time. And so working, continuing to work in with those cells, because at the time, nobody knew what the targets were. For a long time, people really didn't know what the targets um, actually were of these pathogenic cells that could be extracted out of the islets of of, of mice that developed diabetes. And what was a surprise, but of course it's not a surprise anymore, was that actually those cells recognized insulin. It was a a peptide, a a little bit of the, the insulin itself. And so That was exciting. Um, And so if you like placed CD8 T cells on that map of cells that are really important in leading towards diabetes. And if you look in humans, because we now had in recent years a lot more opportunity to have a look at what goes on or what's gone on in human pancreases. It's very clear that of the few cells that are there, and they're far fewer than they are in mice, CD8 T cells are the most prominent cells that are in those islets of people who sadly died having had type 1 diabetes. And they certainly do seem to play a role. Other people have now done this, looked at CD8 T cells in humans, and humans have CD8 T cells that respond to insulin too. That are able to damage islets when they're looked at um, in a dish. Of course, we don't do those experiments in, in people that we can do in the mice. Yeah. So that was one one strand of the work, that, that um, and that's where my science started. But alongside that, I had also been interested in B-cells, B-lymphocytes that produce antibodies. And they too play an important role in the pathogenesis of diabetes. Um, we we've known about the involvement of B cells in type one diabetes because actually one of the first signs of diabetes being an immune disease was production of autoantibodies, antibodies yeah. that recognize targets within the islets. So yeah. they recognize insulin, they recognize proinsulin, the precursor of insulin. They recognize glutamic acid decarboxylase, GAD the um insulinoma associated antigen 2 ia2 and zinc transporter 8 and so we have quite a lot of known targets for the b b cells but again people had studied antibodies but there'd been relatively little study of the b cells themselves and so that study started while i was at, at yale um, and we've continued to do quite a lot of work to look at the role of the B cells themselves, not just the antibodies that they produce. Because we actually don't think the antibodies have a role in actually damaging the pancreas. They're very much an important marker. They're a marker of immune activity. But to date, nobody really thinks that the antibodies themselves damage the pancreas.
0: Can you comment on what you've seen? Oh, sorry. Can you comment on what you've seen in your um, work regarding the presentation of antibody um, you know uh, and heterogeneity of that.
1: Well, the, certainly, certainly um, it is heterogeneous. Uh, there's a lot of work done in in antibody in humans, and I'm not an expert on 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 the antibodies. It, the children tend to have more antibodies to insulin. When diabetes presents at an older age, they tend to have antibodies towards GAD. um, And many clinical settings will now screen for antibodies to GAD, for instance. Um, And um, it would appear that there are differences in the immune responses, but I think it's not so easy to separate, separate those out immunologically. Um, some people have suggested that there is a faster or slower disease depending on which antibody seems to be produced first. Yeah. Um, but uh, that has certainly not been a major focus of, of something that I have that I have done personally. Um, but they're undoubtedly very important. And these days um, the, we would suggest that, that actually. All the work that's been coming out from all the large cohorts has suggested that not only in relatives, but in the general population, if you have two or more antibodies, you have a high chance of developing diabetes in the first, in the 10 years following the detection of those antibodies. And so they do form a very important screening tool. And um, that, if you like, was one of the bases for for the study that we're going to talk about um in, in a minute when we look at at uh, the people who do have antibodies but actually surprisingly didn't have diabetes within ten years.
0: Yeah, so, I just wanted to have a little commentary on the set to set the stage for this because we're heading towards it.
1: Yes. So um we've continued to do a lot of work um, looking at actually B cells and CD8 T cells, because again, this is not a connection that many people make. We know that B cells talk a lot to CD4 helper cells. Mm -hmm. And although I've discussed today CD8 T cells and B cells, that's not to discount CD4 T cells. They're very important, but um, lots of people have studied CD4 T cells. And if, in a way, we've sort of been interested in building up the other bits of the puzzle that have looked at CD8 T cells, which do have a very important role, and actually B cells rather than the antibodies that they produce. And we know that actually, in spite of the fact that T cells, CD4 T cells and B cells have a clear connection, we know that CD8 T cells can interact with B cells as well. Right. And that has been something that we've been interested to, to, to study because we know that not only are CD8 T cells prominent in the islets in people who develop diabetes, um, looking at the post-mortem sections, but actually the next most common cell is the B cell. Yep. And there've been some very recent interesting recent papers that suggest that actually, if there are lots of B cells in there, people are more likely to have had a more aggressive disease and developed diabetes earlier in life than if there are fewer B cells in there. And there is a link between what seems to be the lots of B cells and the more aggressive disease, more CD8 T cells, and the less um, aggressive disease where people develop diabetes at a later age. Um, And that's work that has come out of Exeter, um, where the there is a repository of these very precious pancreatic samples.
0: Yeah. And there are um, there are quite a few repositories, actually. There's the NPOD in, you know, coming out of Mark Atkinson's work in Florida. There's the Canadian repository. Uh, There's the one in the Netherlands and and in England as well. and would you say that? Uh, do you feel that these repositories are equally accessible by the global population, or are they kind of used in their geographical centers?
1: It certainly NPOD has been a major, a major um, advance. And I recall when Mark Atkinson first wanted to do this in. 2006 2007 2008 and actually got it off the ground i think he 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 should really be applauded for all his very hard work in getting this off the ground and i think that anybody can apply to to npod if you've got an idea and you've got some funding what they'll do is they'll make the samples available they don't they don't fund they don't give grant funding, but they'll certainly make the samples available. And I do know of people who've been able to access that when they've presented um, ideas, and they seem to be a very collaborative group of, of people. And the, um, in terms of young scientists who are listening to this, it's an absolutely excellent meeting, the annual MPOD meeting, and I highly recommend it.
0: Yes, thank you for that. Um, vote of uh, you know confidence in that meeting and and encouraging uh, young scientists to to attend it if possible maybe it'll be virtual this year and maybe that'll allow for more people to attend who knows um, I do so then let's see let's talk a little bit more about your you know sort of more recent run-up to the paper what brought you to <clears throat> this um, you know looking at the specific cd8s and 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 thinking about the cd95 you know, high B cell phenotype.
1: Okay, so when just just taking a step back in terms of the paper, one of the things that um, we've been doing is to collaborate with our colleagues at Bristol University who have the Barts Oxford um, longitudinal cohort, and these were a group of people who the study was started way back in the '90s, and it was a family study where people who had diabetes also had relatives who agreed to give samples and the the families have been followed over this long period of time and so they've been able to study the development of what happens when people have had an antibody, did they develop more antibodies, if they've got more antibodies, have they lost their antibodies, when did they develop diabetes and this sort of um, type of study and this recent study has been of interest because one of the things that had become clear was that many people do indeed go on to develop diabetes if you have two or more um, antibodies in the same way as other cohorts in the in the world have shown but that um, initiated initiated um, by my colleague Kathleen Gillespie, who within the box the box study, um, found that there was this small group of individuals who didn 't develop diabetes, she initiated a study and it includes people centers within the United States and also in Sweden who also have small numbers of people who have had antibodies but don 't go on to develop diabetes. Mm. Um, but this particular study was to look at the cohort within the UK as part of the box study and to say, well, can we actually identify what's different about them immunologically if there are any differences? And I think when you approach this sort of thing, um, as one should in any uh, direction in sciences, keep a very open view and say, well, is there a difference rather than assuming that there's bound to be a difference or making an assumption of what that difference will be. Yeah, that's good advice. So what we found was um, that was that in that cohort of, and it was a very small number um, you will see from, from the paper that they had been following a group of people um, and of the, those group of people, some of them couldn't be contacted anymore. Some said, I don't want to be in the study anymore. Some of them uh, became excluded because they had got diabetes, even though it was much later than expected. One person had leukemia. You know, So there were reasons why um, there was, from the 37 people originally identified, we were able to study 10. Mm-hmm. And it was those 10 that we tried to, we looked at to say, well, immunologically speaking, can we identify things that might be different? So we looked at um, T cells and we looked at B cells. Um, So we take going back to the CD8 T cells from that original identification of insulin as being a, a target. A lot of work had been done in the 2000s to say that we can identify peptides recognized by different CD8 T cells. So there are some peptides of insulin, some peptides of proinsulin, peptides of GAD, peptides of ZNT8. And so there's a little collection of peptides that we know are targeted by CD8 T cells in people specifically who have HLA A2. It's not only people of HLA-A2, now there are epitopes identified for people with other HLA class one types. But these are the ones that had been characterized. And so we had done an earlier study. We had been part of the T-cell workshop where we had, if you like, tried to standardize the way um, we detect these antigen-specific CD8 T-cells. And one of the technologies that has been available in the last 20 years has been that if we take those peptides, we can make that we can um, fold them together with MHC class one and put a fluorescent tag on that. Um, And if you put four of those together, those are tetramers. If you put 10 of those together, they're decamers. And the way that it works is very, very beautiful in that if you have an antigen specific T cell, it can recognize its antigen together with MHC class one, and we can detect it on flow cytometry because of the fluorescent tag. Yeah.
0: Very, very, um, you know, fine work. I mean, you have to really dissect, you know, you're, you're sort of dissecting each piece as you go, each piece as you go.
1: Absolutely. It takes a long time to, to work these things out. And so, um, we knew that people who have type 1 diabetes, based on earlier work, do seem to have more of these CD8 T cell responses. It's not to say that people who don't have diabetes don't have any. It's not a all or nothing. Mm. But we know that if we look at this panel of uh, T cell with the targets, um, that more of more of these T cells are found in people who have diabetes than people who don't. And so when we looked within this slow progressor group, it was very striking that even though they had autoantibodies, their CD8 T-cell profile recognizing this group of peptides that are known was much more like people who don't have diabetes than people who do. So that was, if you like, probably the most striking figure in that paper. So although they have antibodies, so they obviously have an an immune response. So something's going on, the B cells have been stimulated to produce autoantibodies and yet the CD8 T cells, or at least those that we could detect, looked much more like people who didn't have diabetes. So it was very striking. And we went on to do some more studies to try and look at surface markers of the T-cells as well as the B-cells. Now, I think I, I will put in a, a limitation here to say we were only studying 10 people, you know, right. so this is a very small number of people. And therefore, we were really, we tried to be quite conservative about what we saw to make sure that we're not just seeing something by chance because of a very small number of people that we studied and so yeah we it, use,
0: it, may be, it may be a boutique uh, you know sort of a uh, study but i i think it holds uh, value in that it can open the door for people to look at bigger groups
1: absolutely and and that's that's what one wants to do is to signpost to to, to looking for these to looking for these things and um so so in terms of the fact that they are very small we want to 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 use more than one method of looking for the markers, and we we highlighted only those where we had a result with more than one methodology, yeah. because you know we can be, if you like, more sure that it's real rather than just a chance finding. Right. And right. so the the things that came out of of that first study was that uh, the B cells the ones that we don't know whether they're the ones that produce (laughs) autoantibodies or not. But the B cells had an increased um, expression of of CD95. So CD95 marks cells for apoptosis, for death within the immune system. And um, so one of the questions you might ask is that um, although they may have more autoreactive B cells, maybe the autoreactive ones are more susceptible to being removed right. and therefore that's one of the controls that checks within these people. Possibility. The other thing is that it was interesting that when we actually looked for what b-cells recognized within those individuals um, and we do this by we did this by ELISPOT. so we actually took B cells, expanded them to memory cells, and then put them on a plate to see whether they responded to particular antigens. And they seem to respond more to proinsulin rather than to GAD or A2. And, And that's interesting because our studies have shown that when you detect B cells like this, they don't necessarily bear any relationship to the antibodies that are expressed. And so maybe the cells that produce the antibodies aren't in the peripheral blood, they're somewhere They're somewhere else. And, and again, this is another limitation of this type of work, of course, is because we do only have peripheral blood and we yeah. can't look more, we can't look nearer the target organ. The other marker that we did identify was that there seemed to be a decreased percentage of memory T cell markers. And so that was another change. And interestingly, the T-cells overall seem to have less CD95. So that's, that's a slightly unusual yeah. finding, I guess. It's like a conundrum. So a few differences, cells, CD8 T-cells that don't, we don't seem to find more that respond to antigens and some changes in the B-cells that may suggest they may be more, in, more easily removed and so, an obvious next step is to um, have a look at regulation, both in the B cell compartment and the T cell compartment. And we're just in the process of um, finalizing some analysis on this. And so I'm hoping that everybody will watch this space because oh, I'm yes. that these results will be available shortly and we will hope to be putting them out there
0: yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, we certainly will be looking forward and hoping to highlight it once the you know once the work is um, published. I do I think just the paper is very um, precise, very fine. You went through each you know each of the cells. you phenotypically characterize them. Um, and I guess I mean, one thing I would ask, uh, just maybe if you wanted to sort of expand on, what, what do you think, uh, do you have any hypotheses that you want to share, or do you want to keep those close for now? I mean, what, what are you thinking is going on here? It's just, it's just kind of funky. But the T and the B cell, right?
1: I think that it's, it seems to me, as, as I watch you know, the field over many, many years, that it's really important not to be too fixated on one type of cell. That, that we know that the, the immune system works as a network and that cells cooperate with each, with each other. And um, we know people have a greater or lesser genetic susceptibility and that the susceptibility factors um, mostly code for things related to immune function within type one diabetes. We know that something in the environment needs to trigger various processes, whether it's one hit or many. And there's undoubtedly going to be heterogeneity. We know that type 1 diabetes is not actually one simple disease where one size fits all. We know that sometimes people develop it when they're very young. Sometimes people don't develop it until they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we even had someone who developed true build type 1 diabetes in their 70s recently, you know, so what determines why some people get it so young, some people get it much older, there's a lot of heterogeneity, and so I think that um, one of the things that a lot of work has pointed to over many years are are two, two aspects of this, one is that maybe the regulatory mechanisms don't work quite as well as they should. And maybe the cells, the aggressive cells, when they are stimulated, aren't quite as easily regulated as they should be either. And so when you get these two facets together with a cell that has become um, activated as an autoreactive cell, that those two things play in together. And so, why that when you get the heterogeneity it may be that quite a few things got to come together to work together and that's what leads to someone getting or not getting diabetes when you've only got bits of those components people may not get diabetes at the same time they may never get diabetes and my question would be and we don't study this because it's not easy to study but you know, are indeed there very many people out there who might have developed diabetes but didn't because they didn't have all the bits that needed to fit together?
0: And how would we best capture that population? I mean, through just a, you know, I don't know. Is, is there any kind of blood repository that, that we could tap into? I mean, I guess you could look at 23andMe to see who has these the susceptibility, genetic susceptibility, and then, you know, get those people through trial net to donate some blood. I mean, I, I mean, what, how, how could that be
1: accomplished? That, you know, it's, it's a, the, the problem is that it is a multi, it is multifactorial and, and this has been exercising us for indeed, as we've said, 30 plus years. Um, the, The advent of the potential for protective treatment—that's coming along because the recent, the recent study, um, with the anti-CD3, teplizumab, has indicated that in people who have had two antibodies or more and some dysfunction, glucose intolerance, when they were given teplizumab, it delayed it delayed the onset of diabetes. And that was really, really exciting. Yes. Because it says that um, potentially you can do something to the immune system and push that time out. So people who've had that treatment, those will be important to study. People who've been on the verge and been, if you like, delayed. If we can do screening studies and do the studies where we are able to screen populations of people, identify those who may have one antibody, two antibodies, three antibodies. Sadly, at the moment, we don't have anything. We don't have a preventive treatment, absolutely, that says, you take this, you won't get diabetes. But if you like, we've started to take steps towards that. And if we could actually identify not only the focused people where where we've said oh you've got two antibodies or more it looks like you know unfortunately you may get at some stage diabetes we could also study the people who have less or that they don't get diabetes those those protected people if you like not only the people who get diabetes who are very important to study, because it's really important to see how we can try and find ways of turning that clock back too. But also moving forward, the people who don't go on to develop more antibodies, more um, signs that they'll go on to get disease. If we could actually do some focused work with some screening, that would be, I think, very important for the future. Yeah. And
0: so it seems like there's a lot of work to be done. And so we need to draw um, or, you know, get uh, some young scientists excited about this. What would you say to young scientists, um, you know, who are training in immunology and, you know, how would you invite them into this this fascinating,
1: you know, realm that you're in? I would say that type one diabetes is really important. It's um, for people who have diabetes, it's it's a really tough disease. And um, if we think about our lives when we don't have diabetes, you don't have to think about what you eat. You don't have to think about when you just want to go out and exercise. You don't have to think about lots of things we take automatically for granted um, about the way we work. And type 1 diabetes tells us a lot about how we work but it's also very important to say well if if we find it easy to do that it is really important to think about the people who don't and the fact that there are no holidays from this and it goes on forever yes and there are now possibilities of turning that clock back of being able to see some light with immunotherapy with being able to to do something that actually has the potential of really making a difference to, to the people who have diabetes. And so I would absolutely encourage young scientists to say, it's a really interesting on a basic science level. It's really interesting. And on a human level, it's really important. And so please do consider that there are many open questions, um, still to solve. And we have moved in steps towards that. So, uh, come and join the um come and join the group
0: yeah i would say um right now in um university of bristol and at cardiff um these are some of your collaborators um th- is this group moving forward to do more work and is there room for postdocs and what's the uh, landscape there in a, in um in this group
1: Well, we in cardiff we have um, We've we've got a very uh, wide ranging um, profile, if you like, of research. We've done a lot of basic science, and so we have a basic science program. And my colleague Colin Diane is um, very much into clinical trials. And the UK has really come together with the clinical, the Type One Diabetes UK Consortium, where we actually do work very closely as a whole constituency to bring people into clinical trials. It has really come together in the last four to five years. And so um, quite a number of clinical trials are ongoing. And so we have both basic science as well as um, clinical, clinical studies going on. And, at Bristol, they have a, the big autoantibody um, lab. They have been members of TrialNet for years, and they've been one of the reference um, reference labs for measuring autoantibodies. Um, funding is always an issue wherever you are, and we are currently and I think, but it's uh, important not to give up on that because it's... Because it's challenging um, and I think that opportunities open up as as we get as we get new grants um, so I think that there are certainly some basic questions that we very much would like to ask, and there's we go alongside the the clinical the clinical studies as well um, in terms of current openings, I think anybody interested would have to apply to us at the time of of being being interested in in that because um you know science goes up and down as we
0: Right do. of course well it sounds like it's a very vibrant place to be so i would encourage young scientists to look into it um, both places bristol university of bristol and uh, cardiff university both seem really kind of exciting places to be right now and this work is really quite unique and looks like you know it's sort of the tip of the iceberg so um so we're really looking forward to seeing what else comes out thank you thank you so much for talking to us today i really appreciate you sharing your you know wealth of knowledge in the field and the historical perspective as well as encouragement
1: for young scientists it's been just great thank you monica for the opportunity it's been great talking to you thank you again